And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you so much for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Doing all right. Busy, busy weekend. It's a busy, busy month for us Is in this, uh, the lead up to the Calgary Comic and Entertainment Expo is always kind of like a... A busy time of year for us, I feel. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I'm a little hungry, but uh, other than that, can't complain. So what are we watching today? Today, Sarah, we are watching the first of many remakes of Phantom of the Opera. Nice. We are watching the 1943 version starring Claude Rains uh, in sound and full... Three strip Technicolor. This isn't our first remake of a horror movie, though. Not even close. That was Stune of Prague was probably the first one, eh? Uh, I mean, maybe one of the dozen or so Jekyll and Hydes we've watched, oh, yeah. too. Oh, yeah. That's been going since, like, 1912. Yes. I think we had two Jekyll and Hydes in our first episode alone. <laughs> well, folks, if you want to hear the previous episode of Phantom of the Opera, that is episode 14, nearly 100 episodes ago, Mm -hmm. uh, currently ranked number 21. You know, episode 14, um, which is called Spared No Expense. Because the the movie Spared No Expense. Is frequently cited back to us as um, like one of the favorite episodes of many listeners. Oh, really? Yeah, it's one of like our top rated episodes in terms of like what people like. It's also, like, one of our most listened to episodes outside of, like, really obvious ones. Like, the first episode is kind of the most listened to kind of thing, right? Oh, the pressure's on. Yeah. I didn't know this before. (laughs) Yeah, it's one of our our more popular episodes. Okay. With that being said, um, not everyone might have the time to go back and listen to that episode, um, since I think it's about an hour and a half, so... Putting it on top of, you know, this episode, like, not everyone has that three-hour block that they can just set aside for Scream Scene. So do you want to give us a brief rundown on what people might have missed to get us up to speed on Phantom of the Opera? For sure. So first, let me kind of tell you about the author of the book, Phantom of the Opera. Okay. His name is Gaston LaRue, and he actually started publishing... Phantom of the Opera in a serialized form in the French newspaper Le Gaulle, and that was between 1909 to 1910, Um, but it was so popular that it was published as a complete novel in 1910. Gaston Louis Alfred Leroux was born in 1868, and he lived till 1927. He was a French journalist, uh, as well as an author of detective fiction, and um, kind of detective pulp short stories. Mm-hmm. He didn't start out that way, though. Uh, in 1890-ish, he was a court reporter and theater critic for newspapers in Paris and the international correspondent for the newspaper Le Matin, where he would cover such big events, such as uh, the 1905 Russian Revolution. Mm-hmm. 
Because of his unique intersection as theater critic and journalist, he was the perfect person to report on the Paris Opera House when the chandelier crashed in 1896, killing one person. However, in 1907, he left journalism to focus on writing fiction, and that same year he published the novel The Mystery of the Yellow Room and more, which would follow a uh, series of adventures with a French detective. In 1919, he and fellow writer Arthur Bernade formed their own film company called the Société des Cineromans to support the kind of novel-to-film creative process and pipeline. And it's through this venture that LaRue met then-head of Universal Pictures, Carl Lemley. LaRue gave Lemley a copy of his phantom novel, and the rest is history. And now you know the rest of the story. So there had long been rumors of a ghost in the Paris Opera House. These rumors kind of were sparked due to uh, real events. For example, a man went missing during the construction of the Opera House. I mean, it should be said that the construction of the Opera House was like a 70-year process, too. So it's not like, oh yeah, the week we were building it, a dude went missing. It's like, meh. Yeah. As they were building the Opera House, they were, you know, excavating Earth. And they discovered a lake where they wanted to build... um, They would empty the water and it would fill back up again. So basically they decided to take that into consideration when building the opera house and it actually acted as a counterweight. So during performances they could have like real elephants come on stage and stuff and actually support the amount of weight that the opera house would have on its stage. Um, However, this is just like a bunch of waterways and things like that, but it led to rumors of a subterranean lake, and catacombs underneath the opera house. Then, of course, there's the chandelier falling. Now, that was just a case of faulty wiring burning through and the chandelier falling as a result, Um, but it was often credited to the opera ghost. And, as Ben said, you know, the opera house was built over 70 years Um, And actually, in 1871, there was a uh, bit of a revolution in Paris. Lots of revolutions in France's history. Um, But this particular one was called the Paris Commune, and the opera house was used in detaining prisoners during this time. And a lot of these rumors, if not all of them, provided fodder for the serialized story, Phantom of the Opera. Now, because it was written as a serialized story, the plot is convoluted and Long and complicated, but let me give you the rundown. It's set in Paris in the 1880s. During the first bit of the novel, the stagehand Joseph Bouquet is found hanged. Around this time, the two current opera house managers are retiring, and at the gala, you know, where they're saying their goodbyes, Christine Daae performs as the leading soprano, Carlotta, is ill. Vicomte Raoul de Chigny attends the performance and recognizes Christine as his childhood friend who he's loved since, and so he goes to visit her backstage, but here's a man in Christine's room. He enters to find no one there. Tension. Mm. Spookiness. Raoul asks Christine about this, who explains that it is the angel of music whom he heard, and she, you know, explains, you know, this... 
the angel of music, you know, the one that my dad used to tell us about as children. Um, as the story goes on, Christine shares that she actually believes this angel of music to be her dad who has passed on. Viral doesn't believe her, of course, um, but when he follows her during her visit to her father's grave, he sees a mysterious figure playing the violin. When he goes to confront the figure, Riel is attacked and knocked out by the figure. Spookiness. Mystery. The new opera managers receive some mysterious letters demanding that Christina should be the lead in Faust instead of Carlotta and to leave box five empty. But they ignore this. They think it's just a prank. They have Carlotta be the lead. Um, Now, Carlotta mysteriously uh, starts croaking during the performance, and this is when the chandelier drops as a result of the opera ghost. Christina's kidnapped during the commotion, is taken to the catacombs beneath the opera house, and the so-called angel of music reveals himself to be Eric, a deformed man, uh, but he's wearing a mask. Now, Eric's plan is to keep Christine for just a few days, you know, just a little bit of kidnapping, but after she unmasks him and sees his true face, which is noseless, lipless, with sunken eyes, basically looking like a dried-up skull with yellow dead flesh. To punish her, Eric says that she must now stay forever. Though after a few weeks and a lot of begging, she is allowed to leave, but she must wear Eric's ring and remain faithful to him. Yeah, he's he's in love with her. Yeah. On the roof of the opera house, Christine tells Raoul everything, um, and Raoul says that he'll take her away tomorrow. Eric's been watching them this whole time, though, and learns of the details of their plan to whisk Christine away. That night, there's a performance of Faust, and during this performance, Eric kidnaps Christine again and tries to force her into marriage. Raoul investigates the catacombs with help from the before-never-mentioned character known only as the Persian. As they explore, they both end up trapped in torture chambers by Eric, and he says that if Christine doesn't marry him, he'll blow up the opera. She agrees, but, you know, he's still going to try to drown Raoul and the Persian. Christine says that, you know, if you really, truly just let them go, like, don't drown them, don't kill them, I won't kill myself after we get married. I'll be a living bride for you. Eric says, okay, cool. And he lets Raoul and the Persian go. Christine kisses Eric as thanks, and he's seen what love is and has finally experienced it himself fully, so he will let Christine go to be with Raoul, and he will soon die of a broken heart. Because of his impending death, he asks Christine to promise to visit him on his death day, and he requests the Persian to report in the newspapers when Eric is dead. So Christine does uh, attend Eric's grave on his death day, and she and Raoul elope. Now at some point during this whole story, Raoul does learn that Eric actually killed his older brother Philippe, and by the end of the final chapter, and with narration from the Persian, uh, it's kind of explained who Eric is. So Eric was deformed from birth and was the son of a construction business owner. He ran away to join the circus, and that's where he learned uh, illusion tricks and things like that. So bringing together his, uh, the tricks he learned at the circus as well as his construction background, he built 
interesting buildings across Persia and Turkey, and that's where the Persian kind of comes into his past. Eric eventually returns to France and is subcontracted to work on the Opera House Foundations, hence why he ended up here. Phew! So that's a very long, convoluted story. Yeah, I mean, and that was a very simplified version of... What was going on. Yeah, like, there's a lot of details in the novel that you you skipped over, and yet it still comes across, like... As too much. As a little convoluted, yeah. Yeah. When it came to Carl Lemley and adapting this novel to screen, he knew that this was the perfect vehicle for star Lon Chaney, Man of a Thousand Faces. Lemley was basically wanting to recreate the success of 1923's Hunchback of Notre Dame, where, you know, you have a lady falling in love with a regular guy, but there's a quote-unquote monster at the center of the story. So Phantom is a perfect follow-up for this. So Cheney, paired with Mary Philbin as Christine, got to work on starring in The Phantom of the Opera. 1925 saw the release of the original version, um, because there are a few different re-releases of this film. Universal poured a ton of money into this movie. Um, They recreated sets to look practically exactly like the Paris Opera House, so much so that um, the soundstage where they built it, Soundstage 28, housed the uh, sets until 2014, because they were that expensive you want to keep them around for a long time and reuse them. There was two-tone Technicolor for the masquerade sequence. There are moments of hand-painted coloring of the Phantom's red cloak, and the entire movie has color tinting. So I just gave you the plot summary of the novel, but let me tell you a little bit about what got included in the movie. It's pretty close. Yeah, it's arguably the most loyal adaptation of the novel, but there are some differences. The main difference being the ending. At the climax, Christine begs Eric to save Raoul and even says that she's willing to marry Eric. Pleased with himself, Eric releases Raoul and Ledoux, and as he sees Christine's love for Raoul, he, you know, looks like he's about to let them go and die of love and whatever was in the original plot of the novel. But this is where the film takes a drastic, classic universal turn. Because during this time, Joseph Bouquet's brother has been leading a mob down into the catacombs, and they break in just as at this climax where Raoul is finally freed. So Eric kidnaps Christine yet again, and we get a little bit of a a mob chase. The mob is chasing after Eric. Christine gets knocked away in a carriage, and Raoul does save her, but we follow the mob chasing Eric through the Parisian streets. Eventually, it comes to a head at the riverbanks of the River Seine, and Eric gets thrown into the river to drown. Yeah, so, I mean, it's pretty close to the book other than simplifying some details here and there until you get to that ending, which is much more dramatic and I think works a lot better in a movie than just like, and then I was sad and I died of emotions. Yeah, definitely. And it is the first time that we have a mob in a universal film. And we also get the first of many universal endings where As soon as the uh, bad guy, the creature, or whoever, is destroyed or killed, the movie ends. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no no denouement. Mm -hmm. In her discussion of the film from episode 14, we noticed how it was very interesting how Phantom of the Opera balanced between a costume drama, a romantic drama, and still 
quite clearly a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Especially because this is pretty early in the horror genre. Um, most of what we kind of see up to this point in the in the twenties are like old dark house type of horror comedies. Yeah. Um, but Phantom really just goes right for the horror. We it's were... kind of like a, a a lot of melodrama in there too. Yeah, the melodramatic elements, um, the capital R romantic elements, and the theatrical nature of the film somehow don't detract from the horror that we see. And I think that was what was surprising to us. Um, and part of the reason why we think, why we thought it didn't detract is because of the way that the production design builds the mood and the atmosphere mm-hmm. um, between the scoring, um, the use of light and shadow in the film. It was quite interesting because like this heavy contrast lighting and the amount of color in the film all felt very evocative and supported the moodiness that you need for a a horror movie and you'd think it would be a little odd or at odds with the amount of spectacle going into Phantom Um, because that's what Carl Lemley really wants. He wants a spectacle film Um, but they merge together really nicely here. Another big discussion point that we talked about was how Lon Chaney was a big factor to the film succeeding. Oh absolutely. Um like, everyone else does pretty well, except for Raoul, who's just a cardboard guy. Um, but Lon Chaney is definitely the standout actor, partly because of his makeup, but mainly because of his performance. He really sells the horror elements through his body language um, and of the kind of insanity that Eric has. And as much as we, you know, noted the ending differences between the novel and the movie, the film's ending helps solidify the horror, really. Yeah, the, the the novel's ending is a little bit more in tune with, uh, like, romantic literature. Yeah. And the deeper core fear that we identified in Phantom, because it's, it's more than just, oh, this deformed guy is scary. Um, the deeper core fear is the fear of, like, a stalker, or we right out say it, the fear of the nice guy. Mm-hmm. Um, a guy who you pity, um, who, you know, uses the rhetoric of like, but I'm a nice guy, give me a chance. And escalates the situation to almost being a stalker. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was what we kind of discussed about the 1925 Phantom of the Opera. And it's still ranking pretty high on the list, as you said. It is. Um, number 12. 21. The movie, when it was released in the, in 1925, definitely hit all the right notes that Lumley was looking for. It's Universal's next spectacle picture, um, it's horror, and the audience loved it. Many reviews noted Cheney's standout performance. So it was released in 1925. Sound film struck Hollywood in the late 20s, and while Universal first thought of creating a colorized and talky sequel to Phantom called Return of the Phantom, which would be a terrible idea. He died. Guys, don't make a sequel. I mean, that hasn't stopped Universal from making sequels to any of its successive monster movies. And I criticize it every time. This sequel was scrapped in favor of just re-releasing Phantom in 1929. They added uh, scoring, sound effects, and dialogue Cheney's performance stayed silent, however, due to him 
being under contract at MGM. This sound version was released in late 29, early 1930, and grossed yet another million dollars for the studio. Big, big success. So this overwhelming success sparked Universal's takeover of the horror genre, with Dracula, Frankenstein, and more coming in practically immediately after this sound re-release of The Phantom. Mm -hmm. So Phantom of the Opera is a huge deal in both the history of Universal and of the horror genre. Yeah, for sure. And I wonder if maybe that's why everyone seems to point to that episode being, like, one of their favorites. The other thing that we hear a lot is um, just the amount of, like, research that went into that episode explaining, you know, the various re-edits of Phantom and the various, like, behind-the-scenes drama when it came to making that movie. Yeah, like, I just talked for, like probably a half hour or more trying to recap that. And I cut out a lot of what we do go into in that mm-hmm. episode. Like I give the history of the building of the opera house in detail because, well, A, it's fascinating, but B, like because Universal rebuilds the sets exactly to the opera house, the sense of place is just baked into this film. But it's like nearly 20 years... 15 to 20 years later that we're getting this remake from Universal. With how much money it made, I'm kind of surprised that it didn't come earlier. Yeah, so when looking at the 1943 Phantom, you know, it's a remake, but in some ways Universal never stopped remaking Phantom of the Opera. Oh. Like, because you had the original version of the movie, Rupert Julian's original version that never got seen past test screenings that was very close to the novel. And then that, you know, got retooled into a romantic comedy version by Edward Sedgwick that also didn't work. And that then got re-edited back into something sort of like the Julian version, but with Sedgwick's ending, which is the action climax ending. And that was the 1925 general release version. And then that got further altered into the 1929 sound re-release with the numerous scenes that were reshot for sound. So, you know, there was this continuing series of kind of revising or remaking Phantom. Now, a big reason for Universal's eagerness to keep reissuing Phantom was the sheer cost of the original production. Featuring, as it did, some of the largest and most expensive sets ever constructed at the time. As you mentioned, Soundstage 28 given over entirely to this replication of the Paris Opera House. Although the movie had been a hit and made Universal quite a lot of money, such costs could be better um, offset by continuing to reuse the materials created. And as early as 1935, Universal was considering a full sound remake of Phantom of the Opera. So the initial idea for this in 1935 was to do it in a contemporary setting in modern-day Paris, with the Phantom as a psychologically damaged World War I veteran who believes himself to be disfigured, but is in fact physically unharmed. A little bit of Dr. Doom in there. Yeah. Uh, This treatment sort of sat on the shelf because Universal ran into some major money problems in 1935 and 1936, and those sort of consumed the studio and resulted in uh, new ownership under the aegis of the Standard Capital Corporation. What brought 
the project back into consideration was Deanna Durbin. The discovery of producer Joe Pasternak, the Canadian-born singer, was signed to Universal Studios in 1936 at the age of 14. She starred in a series of musical comedies for the studio, whose success was largely regarded to be what brought Universal out of bankruptcy. In 1940, a new version of Phantom was being prepared by producer Pasternak for Durbin to star in as Christine, to be written and directed by Henry Koster. Koster was a Jewish director from Germany who fled the country when the Nazis came into power. At the time, Pasternak was Universal's European representative, and he helped get Koster out of Europe by offering him a job with the studio. In 1936, Koster directed Deanna Durbin's first film for Pasternak, and so the three became a team. While working for Universal, Koster also discovered Abbott and Costello working the nightclub circuit and convinced the studio to sign them. Koster also married Universal actress Peggy Moran, who we saw in The Mummy's Hand and Horror Island. So Koster's version of Phantom picked up a thread from the novel and the 1925 version where the Phantom implies that he may be an angel sent by Christine's father or perhaps her dead father himself. Uh, And he does this in order to earn Christine's trust. In Koster's script, the Phantom is indeed Christine's father, who abandoned his family to pursue a career in music. However, Deanna Durbin was put under suspension in 1941 for refusing to appear in a project called They Lived Alone. And so Phantom was retooled into a comedy for Abbott and Costello to appear in. Oh boy, that would be something. Now by 1942, Durbin's suspension was lifted, and Universal's biggest star had gained the right of approval over her own projects, including approval of director, story, and songs. By 1946 or 47, Deanna Durbin was the highest paid woman in America, I believe. Oh, wow. Good for her. So work began again on a dramatic version with Durbin. However, by this time, Joe Pasternak had left Universal for a higher salary at MGM. So, to serve as the new producer, the studio brought on George Wagner, Universal's new horror golden boy, the producer of The Wolfman, uh, Ghost of Frankenstein, and Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. And Wagner wanted his star, Lon Chaney Jr., cast in his father's role as the Phantom. No, George. George, no. Now, Coster thought that Chaney was ill-suited to the role, and Durbin felt bringing Wagner and Chaney onto the movie cheapened the production. So uh, Durbin dropped out, uh, seeking to transition to more sophisticated roles, such as in Robert C. Edmack's film noir Christmas Holiday, and Wagner fired Henry Coster. To replace him, Wagner brought on Arthur Lubin, another major director at the studio at the time. Born Arthur Lubovsky in Los Angeles in 1898, he changed his name in honor of filmmaker Sigmund Lubin. Initially, Arthur Lubin was an actor, appearing in unsuccessful plays and minor film roles. His film career picked up in the later half of the 1920s, but he was less satisfied with film acting, feeling that stage acting allowed an actor to express more personality than film acting did. He transitioned to directing, 
starting at Monogram in 1934 and working his way up through Republic and then signing to Universal in 1936. Lubin believed that all directors should have some acting experience, the better to interact with their cast, and bemoaned the fact that most directors were former writers. A previous Lubin picture that we have watched for the show was 1940's Black Friday, with Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi. Okay, so that's not on the list because it's not a horror movie. Well, yeah, it was sort of a crime movie with like a sci-fi horror like gimmick. Yeah, and I don't remember the directing well enough to be able to comment on whether Lubin's good or not. Mm. In 1941, Lubin scored his first big hit, Buck Privates. Abbott and Costello's second picture for Universal, but the first in which they were the stars. The film made $4 million. Damn. And Lubin's salary got a raise. Yeah. He directed five more pictures with the comedy duo into 1942, and was the most commercially successful director in Hollywood that year. Lubin's first post-Abbott and Costello movie was the war film Eagle Squadron from 1942, a film about the Battle of Britain that made $2.9 million at the box office, establishing Lubin as a major force at Universal. Mm-hmm. Lubin, by the way, was uh, gay. He lived with his partner, Frank Buford, uh, the whole time that he was working in Hollywood. Phantom would be his highest budgeted picture yet when he was given the assignment. And indeed, the 1943 Family Opera will be the highest budgeted picture we have seen on the show thus far. It was initially budgeted at $1.5 million and ended up costing $1.75 million. So not not too bad over budget? No. Some films go way over budget. That's that's kind of, you know, tippy toe over. Yeah, but this is this is certainly the most uh, expensive movie that we have seen so far for the list. Um, the cost of the movie is uh, just a little bit over what the silent movie cost. And if you adjust for inflation, it's actually uh, quite a lot over what the silent movie cost. Okay. $100,000 alone of the budget, which is, you know, an entire movie for PRC, was spent soundproofing the old Paris Opera House sets. That that makes sense. Yes. That makes sense as, like, something you would need to do. Yes. And it worth, you know, if I'm an accountant and I'm a pro... Uh, I guess that's a producer's job. If I'm a producer and I'm looking line by line, that's like, uh, yeah, okay, I see that. I see why you got that. I don't, I don't understand the, you know, $1,000 for craft services, but okay, I'll, I, I'll approve the soundproofing. Yeah. The film's story was adjusted at this point. The studio felt that the love story between the Phantom and Christine was still a well-known element of the original story, and so making the Phantom her father created an incestuous overtone to the film, even though the new version did not depict their relationship as a romantic one. So, the detail of their relationship was dropped from the story, leaving the reason for the Phantom's obsession with Christine somewhat vague in the final script. The final screenplay is credited to three writers, German-Jewish writer Hans Jacobi, uh, 1931 Jekyll and Hyde co-writer Samuel Hoffenstein, and 
Black Friday, 1941 Black Cat, and Ghost of Frankenstein writer Eric Taylor. So, with the departure of star Deanna Durbin from the picture, it was clear that the movie was in some trouble. While the rationale for bringing in Wagner and Chaney was to give the movie some horror bona fides, the studio primarily wanted their Phantom of the Opera remake to be seen as a prestige picture, uh, as evidenced by the A-movie budget. And it was felt that an A-list cast, or at least a few big names, were necessary to carry the marketing. So, to this end, Lon Chaney Jr. was dropped from the cast, owing to studio concerns about his ability to carry the picture. Yeah. So it's at this point that Claude Rains enters the story. Uh, we, of course, first saw Rains in 1933's The Invisible Man. Briefly saw him. <laughs> and later as Sir John Talbot in 1940's The Wolfman. The now 54-year-old actor was still on contract to Warner Brothers at this time, uh, having just appeared in 1942's Casablanca, for which he was nominated for the second time for an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor. Reigns agreed to take the role as the Phantom on the stipulation that the part would require minimal makeup. He was, he was not willing to do the extreme makeup that uh, Lon Chaney Sr. did in the original um, and, you know, basically wanted to either have sort of a normal face or be under the mask for most of the movie mm -hmm. um, and you really only have, like, shots of the makeup job be, like, one or two shots in the film. Sure. And I feel like probably what's happening here is, you know, he's saying, hey, I'm 54 and I'm a big name and I'm not even at contract at this studio. This is a loan. So you need to, like, keep me happy. And I don't want to spend six hours a day in the makeup chair. So how about you fuck off? Like, that's <laughs> probably what's going on here. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. So to replace Deanna Durbin, the studio got 19-year-old ingenue Susanna Foster. Born Suzanne Larson in 1924 in Chicago... She was brought to Hollywood at age 12 by MGM, who groomed her for an acting and singing career in their, like, studio, like, child performer school, uh, which she attended alongside people like Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney. This was very common, uh, especially at MGM, but, like, at movie studios at the time, was to, like, identify someone's talent young and just bring them in and just train them from the ground up so that you had these performers in the 30s and 40s who could dance and sing and act and just do everything and were just, you know, also 100% dependent on the studio for their entire livelihood. Yeah, I can't see how that's exploitative or awful in any way. However, uh, roles for Susanna at MGM actually never materialized. And, uh, like, any projects they had for her just kind of got canceled. And her first film roles were actually in 1939 at Paramount Pictures, uh, was where she ended up landing. And in those films, her performance caught the attention of William Randolph Hearst and his wife, Marion Davies. Hearst instructed his media empire to turn Susanna Foster into a star. With her appearance in Phantom, which was the beginning of her new contract at Universal, uh, heralded by Hearst columnist Luella Parsons as the arrival of a great new talent. 
She would appear in eight films in a two-year stretch from 1943 to 1945, uh, but she soon wished to quit the film business. Desperate to keep Foster on, Universal financed a 1946 post-war tour of Europe to make her dreams of singing opera come true. Uh, She made a successful stage career in Europe and on Broadway until 1948, when she married her Broadway co-star Wilbur Evans. She retired to raise their two sons in the 1950s, but the marriage collapsed in 1956, and when Foster attempted to return to L.A. for a comeback in 1962, Evans sued her for child custody. He lost the lawsuit, but managed to keep Foster from moving away from New York. He withheld child support and alimony, and Foster and her sons fell into poverty as Evans disappeared from their lives. Fuck that guy. In her old age, Foster lived at the Lillian Booth Actors Home, and she passed away in 2009. Fuck that guy. Universal's biggest coup in the cast might have been the male romantic lead, however. Nelson Eddy, cast as opera singer Anatole Garon, one of two men in the movie In Love with Christine, alongside police officer Raoul Dubert. Born in 1901 in Providence, Rhode Island, Nelson Eddy educated himself with correspondence courses while working in an ironworks factory and singing in church choirs in order to try and hone his voice. In 1924, he won a singing contest whose top prize was to perform with the Philadelphia Opera Company. By the late 1920s, he was a star baritone at the Philadelphia Opera Company, and by the early 1930s, he was a star concert singer. He began appearing in films, believing it would increase attendance to his concerts, and signed with MGM. His first big hit was 1935's Naughty Marietta, acting alongside star Jeanette MacDonald. His best-remembered picture is probably 1936's Rosemarie, where he established the definitive pop culture version of the Canadian Mountie, uh, and he was also starring with Jeanette MacDonald in that film. He began a passionate love affair with MacDonald, which continued on and off until her death in 1965. Studio boss Louis B. Mayer arranged both Eddie and MacDonald to marry other people in the late 1930s uh, to try and stop the relationship, Uh, but they both maintained their marriages and continued the affair with each other. Eddie would make a total of eight films with MacDonald and 15 overall with MGM, but his contract ran out in 1942. Phantom was Eddie's first post-MGM film. So this was kind of a big deal. Like, Nelson Eddie was the number one concert singer in America, and he was this big crossover star because he was equally famous for opera and, like, MGM musical comedies, basically. Uh, he was very popular. So him coming over to Universal was this huge deal. Uh, but he was unhappy with how Phantom of the Opera turned out and severed his ties with Universal after his production. Eddie felt that Universal's sound technology was inferior to MGM's and that it did not properly replicate the sound of his voice. Uh, He made three more films after that, including the film Make Mine Music for Walt Disney, and uh, he passed away two years after Jeanette MacDonald in 1967. 
So music for this version of Phantom of the Opera would be composed and supervised by Edward Ward. The war in Europe at the time made it difficult for the studio to track down the rights holders to most operas, uh, much less pay them. So, largely public domain music would be used in this film, <laughs> with Ward basically creating fake operas out of public domain classical music. Okay. Phantom was initially rejected by the Breen office, partially due to concerns about violence, but primarily due to dressing room scenes of Christine, which the PCA felt revealed too much of her breasts. The scenes were either cut or reshot before the film was released on August 12th, 1943. It was a box office success, grossing $3,488,000, but critics were unimpressed. The New York Times complained that it was watered down from the original, saying, quote, The richness of decor and music is precisely what gets in the way, while the New Yorker said it was, quote, By no means proof of the march of progress in the film world. The old version had Lon Chaney, who scared you plenty, and the new one has Claude Rains, who somehow doesn't. <laughs> However, Family Opera was nominated for four Academy Awards, uh, for sound recording, score, color art direction, and color cinematography, and it won for art direction and cinematography. And the film's success led Universal to quickly announce a sequel to be called The Climax that would feature Eddie, Foster, and Reigns reprising their roles. This film would ultimately not quite happen that way. Okay. But uh, the story of The Climax is best left for another day. <laughs> so, how are we watching this film? Well, the 1943 version of Family of the Opera is available on DVD and Blu-ray, and you can find it online on iTunes, Google Play, the Microsoft Store, and YouTube. Okie doke. So, you can find it to rent on our YouTube playlist then, which you can find at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss the 1943 Phantom of the Opera, directed by Arthur Lubin. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching the 1943 adaptation of Phantom of the Opera, directed by Arthur Lubin. Oh, whenever we watch a Phantom of the Opera movie, I just get the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical stuck in my head. Oh, really? Yeah. I found that this movie had... Enough of its own musical? Like, like enough of a, an obsession with its own, like, unique melody that that's what's stuck in my head? Ah. Uh, yeah. So this movie is terrible. <laughs> it's, a, it's okay. It's a terrible horror movie. It's a unique kind of terrible because yeah. it's not the kind of terrible that you normally get with horror movies, especially of this vintage. Which is to say that like the production values are good. 
Like sure. they spent a lot of money. You can everyone, see the money. Yeah, everyone making the movie is like competent, knows what they're doing, except maybe the writers. Um, <laughs> like, like it's not like the the typical thing where you're watching like an old horror movie and it's like, oh, this movie's trash because like they built a car out of cardboard, that kind of thing, right? It's like no, like this is a big budget movie for sure, but like that's. I tend to agree with the New York Times guy who said that, like, that was the movie's problem, that, like, the big budget gets in the way. But let's just talk about the story first. Yeah, okay, tell us what happens. So, Family Opera 1943 proves that Hollywood's drive to utterly miss the point of why a story or character was appealing in the first place by concocting an overlong and unnecessary origin is not simply a product of modern times. Yeah, we begin at the Paris Opera House. It is the 1880s. It is actually a little bit earlier than previous versions of Phantom of the Opera have been set. And um, we have our cast of characters who basically fall into recognizably kind of the same characters as we had in the original, maybe. There is Christine Dubois, who is the young ingenue. Why, why not just Daye? Everyone's names are slightly different. Yeah, Everyone's I, names are slightly different. Yeah, I don't... Ugh. Moving on. Then there is... Uh, she. She's, of course, a young singer with the opera and looking for her big break. She has a love interest, Raoul Dubert, who is an inspector with the Sûreté, uh, and he wants her to quit this opera business and be his wife, essentially. Then she has an admirer, Anatoly Guerrant, who is a baritone with the opera. That's Nelson Eddy's character. And he wants Christine to be with him. And then... And, and further her career. Sure. Listen, he's very supportive of her career. Fair. Versus Dubert, who's like, women should be in the home. I mean, he doesn't necessarily want women to be in the home. He wants Christine to not be at the opera. Fair. Then there's Eric Claudin, who is a 48-year-old violinist in the orchestra at the opera. And I will say that if we remember that the script of this movie originally had Claudin as Christine's father, uh, in the original novel, um, Christine's father was a violinist. Mm -hmm. So, a little bit of a connection there. Now, Claudin is old, and <laughs> because of that, he can't play like he used to, so he's fired. Yep. And After 20 years, that's the right. same place. That's right. He's, he's, his, he's given his life to the opera and all that. And everyone's like, right, but, like, you're a violinist at the Paris Opera. You have a very high salary. I'm sure you have enough to retire on. But we find out that Claudin lives in abject poverty because he's actually been spending all of his money on music lessons for Christine. Secretly. Yes. She doesn't know, and she never asks, presumably. Yeah, it seems to be this, like... She thinks that her music teacher is doing this out of the goodness of his own heart. Yeah. And her music teacher is somewhat confused as to Claudin's um, motives here as well. As is everyone in the audience for the rest of the movie. Because the movie doesn't really give you his motives. Uh, Claudin, in fact, says, don't ask me my motives. Now, if he was Christine's dad, that would make sense. He's trying to, you know, secretly help his daughter... Uh, on the side. If he was in love with her, that would also make sense, except the thing about being a sugar daddy is it doesn't work if the girl you're trying to woo doesn't know 
you're the sugar daddy. Yeah. So that doesn't really make sense. Anyways, now with being fired, Claude Dan does not have the money now to continue the music lessons. So he's going to have to turn to selling a concerto he's written based on an old lullaby from uh, the part of France he hails from to some music publishers. So he goes to these publishers and they're, they're, they're dicks, basically. And due to a misunderstanding, um, he thinks that they're actually going to steal the manuscript and try to, like, publish it as their own without giving him credit. And he gets very angry and he attacks one of the publishers and chokes him to death. And a, um engraving assistant or secretary or someone, she works there, is witness to this and kind of freaks out and grabs a tub of engraving acid and just throws it in Claudan's face. <laughs> and uh, before you can say Harvey Dent, Claudan has fled into the sewers of Paris with the police hot on the trail of this murderer. Shortly thereafter, like maybe the next day even, you know, the stories in the paper that this old former violinist has murdered this dude and been scarred with acid and has disappeared. And the management of the opera is very upset about the... Bad press. The bad press uh, that this causes for their opera house. And there's been some other things going on at the opera a little bit mysterious. A costume has been stolen along with some masks. Management doesn't really care about that, but some food has also been stolen, and management does care about that. As well, the manager's key, which opens every lock in the opera house, has also been stolen. Uh, so this is a big problem. And who, who could this be? The stage manager is convinced it's the opera ghost, which really doesn't make any sense, because there hasn't been a Phantom of the Opera before today. Yep. Anyways... He's also the only person who thinks it's a ghost or brings up that it's a ghost ever in the movie. Like, yeah. That's, he's the fan of the opera because the stage manager says he is. Anyways. Listen, look, you, you do what the stage manager tells you to do. So, with all of this happening, um, Christine is now getting her singing uh, instruction from Anatoly, uh, which is not something that Ral is super like, happy about, and the three of them have this love triangle that is sort of continuing. Um, they know that Claudin had some obsession with Christine because they find a bust that Anatoly made of Christine in Claudin's apartment that yeah. he stole from Anatoly. Yeah. Which is a weird-ass, like, roundabout thing that we have a whole scene based on. Never really goes anywhere either. Yeah. Um, after this, we have a plot involving this movie's version of Carlotta, who is Bianca Roli, and she's the lead singer at the opera, and Eric, who is now prowling about backstage in the shadows as the Phantom. Uh, nobody calls him that. Uh, <laughs> he uh, poisons or drugs Bianca Roli mid-performance so that Christine has to go out and perform. And everybody loves her. And Bianca Roli, when she recovers, is very upset. She suspects that Anatoly did it to uh, further Christine's career. She accuses them of trying to murder her. She tries to, you know, make it so that Christine can never perform again, yada yada. When um, she resumes the role and continues in future performances and Christine is not allowed to sing because Bianca Roli's upset about it, Eric shows up in Bianca Roli's dressing room and kills her and her maid off screen. And so this starts a now a murder investigation. And due to 
some circumstances, namely Anatoly following the Phantom after the murder into the like rafters of the opera, and Raoul following Anatoly. Raoul thinks Anatoly is the murderer. Uh, so this is, of course, you know, increasing the the rivalry between the two men. Now, with a major star of the Paris Opera having been murdered, uh, there's all this pressure on Raoul to solve the case. So he comes up with the idea of instead of letting Christine perform, let's not do that and draw the murderer out because he'll get angrier and we'll just post police all through the opera. You know, a sound plan. Like, I see where he's coming from. And Atoli, meanwhile, has a different plan because they, they know. They know that Claudin's the Phantom. Like, there's, there's never even a question. Like, there's no mystery about... Like, the stage manager thinks it's a ghost, but everyone else is like, oh, yeah, a dude went crazy and murdered a dude, and now there's... He was obsessed with Christine, and now there's murders happening involving Christine. Like, yeah, it's this guy. Uh, so his plan is to get Franz Liszt, the famous pianist, like the most famous pianist who ever lived, uh, and Atoli's idea is to just get Franz Liszt to, like, perform Claudin's concerto... And that'll draw Claudin out, because, like... Music? Because, like, this really good pianist is performing it, right? So, like, he'll he'll have to come out to... So this plan, like, realistically, probably not going to work. But in the context of, like, a melodramatic, musical-based film, I can see why that would be a workable plan. Mm-hmm. Anyways. So two viable plans here is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, they do both. Uh, the opera performs, and then Liszt is going to come out and play the concerto. We have the opera with not Christine performing, and this does, in fact, anger Eric. So he saws through the chain, holding up the chandelier with a hand saw, uh, like a little hacksaw. And, and the uh, chain is like the like as thick a, as my arm. It's just, you know, as thick as a chain <laughs> that you'd need to hold a massive chandelier in the air would be. Oh, and he takes, like, the whole performance to saw through it. It is hilarious. And so the chandelier falls on the audience, as you may expect, in a uh, stunning, you know, spectacular display. And, uh, you know, this is, of course, very upsetting for everyone. And in the aftermath, uh, Eric shows up and captures Christine and brings her down into the uh, catacombs underneath the opera house, uh, shows her the big lake, brings her to his, uh, you know, hideaway, and everyone's going around, you know, where's Christine, where's Christine? And, uh, you know, eventually Raoul and Anatoly team up to go down into the catacombs and find uh, Eric and Christine, and Liszt is up on the stage playing the concerto, and uh, Eric's down in the basement playing it on his piano, like, in time, and Christine, for no real reason, decides she's going to take off Eric's mask, uh, just sort of out of nowhere. Uh, and he's all scarred up on one side of his face. Basically, he's Two-Face from yeah. Batman. Yeah. And Raoul and Anatoly are able to find them due to his playing. Uh, they just track the music. And luckily, they come in right as the mask is taken off. So it's one whole scene of makeup. Yeah, maybe like three shots. Raoul fires, like, a warning shot from his gun into the air, and this causes... No, he's about to shoot the Phantom, and Garon pushes it up. Oh, is that what happens? blocks the shot. Either way, he fires one bullet into the ceiling, which causes the entire ceiling to collapse, (laughs) burying Eric in uh, rubble as the three uh, heroes run away because the entire place is coming down, and the entire underground 
catacombs beneath the opera house that are part of the opera house's foundation and keep it standing collapse, uh, somehow miraculously leaving the opera house standing, despite the fact that that makes no sense. Mm -hmm. And in an epilogue, we discover that Christine has chosen her career over either Raoul or Anatoly, so they're just going to date each other. The end. So this is our first ever musical here on Scream Scene. It's, you know, it's not a musical, though. This isn't the definition of a musical. In the classic Hollywood conception, though, of a musical, we got spectacle. We got, like, we see the performance on stage. That's true. It's not a musical it's, it's a, in the sense of, like, I'm going to sing about my feelings. Yeah, it's, it's a backstage musical, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's where, where all of the performances are diegetic. You're, you're, yeah. you're, you're right. Yes, that's, that's totally what it is. Thank you. Um, there's there's <laughs> so much singing. So, so much. So this movie's an hour and a half. The point in the running time where what you might consider the story of the original Phantom of the Opera begins. That is to say, there's a phantom on the loose, and, you know, Christine is, is his protege, and, and, you know, he's going to do all this stuff to sabotage everyone uh, to get her career moving. Notes that, have been passed around. Right, that all starts 40 minutes in yeah. to the hour and a half. So the first 40 minutes are the origin of the Phantom of the Opera, mm-hmm. and then the last 40 minutes are, you know, the story of what was the entire original movie. Um, And you may have noticed, like, I didn't mention a masquerade scene or anything like that, because so much of this running time is just the opera performances. Like, you're just seeing all of the opera performances in real time. Yeah. Obviously, this movie also did not spare any expense, and a lot of the money would have gone to the three-strip Technicolor, um, but I think a significant portion of the budget went to putting on three or four operas. Mm-hmm. The impression I kind of got from this movie, because the, the, the focus is really on the spectacle, mm-hmm. the romance, yeah. the uh, glamour. It has a very MGM feel where, like, we're supposed to be more awed by, like, the costumes and look how many people are on the screen and look at how pretty everyone looks. Um, and it feels like the focus is really way more on that than, like, anything to do with the Phantom. Like, once, it's funny, once Claudin becomes the Phantom, he stops kind of being a character in the movie, like... He becomes a shadow. Right, like, the first half of the movie where it's his origin story, the story is basically told from his perspective. He's the protagonist, and then he just kind of disappears for the back half. (sighs) The impression I kind of get is that this movie was so expensive that they kind of knew that... Like, when a movie costs this much, it has to appeal to a wider audience, right? So I think that's why the horror stuff is really toned down, and you have this attempt to kind of copy, like, the MGM style, because you're going, well, you know, okay, the people who don't like horror, we're going to get them because they like Nelson Eddy, or we're going to get them because they like, you know, the music, or they like this or that, right? Like, there seems to be this, like, attempt to kind of appeal to everybody like here's some comic relief here's this and it really like waters down what the entire movie's about the most horrific that this film got was the murder scene when Clodin attacks the publisher yeah and when he gets the the acid thrown in his face and goes uh, barreling into the sewers although parts of that i found a little unintentionally comedic yeah no i'm talking just the scene where he's attacking the publisher choking him out Mm -hmm. and then the chick 
tosses the acid on him. Mm-hmm. Just that part is the only, really, the only horrific part in, of this movie. There are moments where this movie tries to do suspense through intercutting, but it doesn't work because, um, for example, uh, during the chandelier being cut with the handsaw, we're cutting between the performance on stage, which we see, like, the first, I'll say, act of the performance of, like, the entrance of the baritone dude, um, and him finishing that song before we even get to, oh, Eric's skulking around and making his way up to the chandelier, and we're constantly cutting back between performance and skulking. Then when he gets to the chandelier, he starts cutting. We're cutting between the chandelier, um, the performance, and police officers kind of looking around, but we're not even seeing what they're seeing. This kind of intercutting isn't working to bring up suspense because there's so much emphasis put on the musical performance yeah. of seeing every aspect of that performance. You're left wondering why people are, why the police are wandering about. Like, we don't see if they are suspicious about something. We don't see what they're looking at. We don't see any of that. We just, you know, cutting between these things. And it it's, takes so long that it's comical. There's another part where um, Garon is accused of murder, um, both when he ha- was being followed by Raoul and also when Bianca accuses him of poisoning her. And there's no fear. No one seems to be afraid of Garon. It's just like a momentary suspicion. Um, there's no like feeling of suspense or any kind of tension. Well, yeah, because we know that he's not the murderer. This is the problem with a lot of the movie, is the original Phantom of the Opera is a mystery, right? Who is the Phantom? Is he man? Is he ghost? What's his deal? What is he after? What's his secret? What's behind the mask? All of this. Because this movie gives us this origin, like, we know who he is, we know what his deal is, we know which person in the cast he is. So this entire, like, subplot about, like, oh, is Garan the murderer, doesn't go anywhere, and it, it has no real point. It just... All it really does is increase the tension between Garant and Raoul, but that tension is meaningless because it's basically just played for laughs. Yeah. Um, because what's really happened here is the Raoul of the book has been split into two characters. And that's only been done so that you can have a male singer, because Raoul isn't a singer, yeah. right? And it doesn't make any sense for a singer to be the guy, like, arranging the traps for the Phantom and getting the police involved and so on, which is Raoul's, like role in the story but the two are basically like superfluous to each other a lot of the comic relief is even the fact that like they're saying the same lines at the same time because they both essentially are the same character so a lot of these things that the movie's trying to do to ratchet up tension don't work Mm -hmm. what i see a lot of in this movie is a movie that kind of knows what Phantom of the Opera is and knows like what it needs to do to be a Phantom of the Opera movie like we need to have this guy with this mask, in a cape, going around in the shadows of the opera. We need to have the chandelier come down at a certain point. He plays the piano, and she takes his mask off, and it's scary. Like, there's these certain beats they know they need to hit, but it's not really interested in any of that. Mm -hmm. Like, the fan of the opera elements of this movie are pushed to the sidelines. It's why the chandelier thing that you're describing doesn't work, because the movie's more interested in putting the spectacle of the opera performance on the screen and letting us hear Nelson Eddy sing than it is in 
the suspense of the chandelier coming down. I don't think Universal intended to adapt this as a horror movie. I think it was always intended to be something else. So with the context that you gave in the opening, first the idea was as a comedy with Abbott and Costello, then a family drama of, like, you know, him being her dad, whatever, and now it's this romantic comedy musical. Mm -hmm. It's completely spectacle, completely MGM spectacle, costume drama musical. There's, like, the horror is completely, like, taken out or inoculated. Um, the only thing this movie does is add recognizable musical themes for Andrew Lloyd Webber to rip off in 1986. I mean, I don't think there's any music from this in the 86 version. The lullaby that they play is the Think of Me song that Christine sings. Is it? The thing that really interests me about this movie is the way that it demonstrates a flaw that Hollywood is still doing mm. to this day. Okay. When they do these kind of like, let's go back and tell the origin kind of movies. Yeah. It's this sense that you bring in these writers and these writers think like, oh, I can fix the original story or I can do it better, right? I can improve on it. And in improving on it, they lose what made the original story, like, effective or make sense. So the story in the original Family of the Opera is convoluted, mm -hmm. and it also lacks narrative economy. Um, because it combines, basically, Gaston LaRue's, like, varied interests in, like, really weird ways. Like, there's just stuff in that story because, like, oh, he was into this and that and the other thing. And it's also designed for serialization, so it has to, like, keep going and keep having these different twists, right? So in the original story, you know, Christine has, like, two different trips down to the Phantom's Lair, right? An initial one uh, where he first reveals himself to her and one at the climax. This movie takes them and just makes them one trip. He mm -hmm. reveals himself to her and that's the climax trip as well. You know, there's, there's multiple notes and warnings to the managers, and those are kind of condensed here, right? We get rid of the masquerade sequence because she only goes down into the uh, lair one time. Things like that. So you can see this movie trying to, like, streamline the story, but it makes the story less effective because now when we get to the climax and he's there and he's like, oh... Christine, I've been obsessed with you this whole time, and blah, blah, blah. Like, this is her first time meeting this guy. So there's no connection here, mm -hmm. right? There are these moments that the movie knows it has to have, like her pulling off his mask. But it doesn't make sense anymore. Because in the original, you know, he's been in this mask, and he tells her, like, whatever you do, don't take off my mask. That gives her this curiosity. As well as the fact that no one knows who this guy is, is he... You know, a ghost? Is he an angel of music? Is he her dead dad? 
who is this guy? So she's curious, and then she takes it off, and oh my god, it's this, you know, it's Lon Chaney Sr. Um, <laughs> whereas in this movie, like, she knows that it's uh, Claudin. She, know she knows what's behind the mask. It's Claudin, but he's scarred up with acid. Like, she knows. And he never tells her, like, don't take off my mask. So she just suddenly decides to do it while he's playing piano for no reason. But we know it has to be there, right? There's a lot of that kind of stuff in this movie. You can kind of understand the desire to want to streamline the story and to tell it in a way that connects the elements more fully and make them feel more of a whole. Because in the original story, you know, the Phantom's origin is kind of all over the map. Yeah. And there's all these characters like... Raoul is a nobleman, and Christine is from Sweden, and the Persian is from Persia, and there's just all these different characters coming in, and it makes sense to want to try and, like, condense that down into, like, well, you know, maybe Raoul's a cop, and that's why he's the guy trying to catch the Phantom, and, you know, let's get a male singer in here, and let, let's keep everything at the opera house rather than have it be this sprawling thing. In attempting to simplify the Phantom's origin, we're left with a story where the character and his actions no longer makes sense. Mm -hmm. Because, so once we're at the point where Eric is the Phantom in this movie, um, Eric and Eric from this movie, like the two Phantoms, are basically the same guy. They do the same things. They have the same M.O. But their origins and their motivations are completely different. So, of course, completely changing everything about a character and how they are makes how they act like, no longer work or yeah. make sense, right? So if you compare the two, right, the original Phantom, it's a mystery, as I've said. So you are wondering who this guy is, and that gives him mystique. He's been at the opera for years, for like 20 years, skulking around in the shadows and doing stuff, which is why there's this big legend of the opera ghost and why he's the Phantom. And it makes sense that he's able to evade everyone because he built the place and he knows where all the secret passages are. And, you know, he's got this brilliant mind for mechanics and mechanisms and he was the Shah of Persia's, like, torture chamber designer. So that's why he knows how to do all these things to, like, kill people and put them in death traps. And, you know, he's also this musical genius, which is why he's taken an interest in, you know, Christine and writing an opera for her and stuff. And he's in love with Christine, which is why, you know, he wants her to come down and sing for him. And he's been disfigured since birth, so you can understand his sort of um, bitterness at the world because... Hating him because of the way he looks is really unfair. He didn't have anything to do with how he looks. You know, he was born that way, and so it makes sense that he hates everyone and that he just desperately wants someone to love him and, like, you know, and that he's so twisted by his need for love but his bitterness at other people that that makes his sort of violent, abusive, sort of stalker thing with Christine make sense. Like, that all comes together. Whereas Claudin is this, like, old guy who's really sweet and gentle, and he's obsessed with Christine for some reason? Mm -hmm. And it's like, the movie has her sing the lullaby that he's based his concerto on to Raoul in a scene, or to Anatoly, rather. They're the same guy. So we know that she knows it from when she was a girl, and that's clearly from the he's her dad version of the script, right? That's where that was supposed to make sense. At the end of the movie, Christine's even like, you know, that song he was playing was the lullaby I knew as a girl. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, but he's this sweet old guy. 
who's given all of his money to get her music lessons for reasons, and then when he gets acid splashed in his face because of a misunderstanding, because he thinks that the publisher is going to steal his music, which isn't actually what's happening, then he runs into the sewers and becomes the Phantom and becomes this drama queen who likes to drop chandeliers on people and stuff. And it just doesn't quite work anymore because, like, what's he trying to do and why? Yeah. Right? What's his motivation? What's like, it? it's, a, it's like the idea of, like, one everyone's one bad day away from becoming a psychopath. Mm-hmm. This movie... That's the only motivation for Claudan yeah, in this movie. They're trying. Well, the thing is, is you can you can feel how an, a writer would get here, right? Because you're like, well, like, why does the Phantom hate everybody, and like, what's his deal, and like, what's the story behind the Phantom? Well, what if you know he he got splashed with acid, and now he hates everyone and wants revenge or whatever? But like, that doesn't even work because the people who splashed him with acid are not the opera. Right? So he's yeah. out for revenge against the wrong people because they've given him an origin that's new but still has to have him end up as the same guy as before. Right? Yeah. And I can see why it's like, well, you know, because we want to get rid of the Shah of Persia stuff and all of this complicated nonsense. He's just an old dude now who was a violinist. Yeah. Like, it's like, what? There's so much weird arbitrary stuff. Like, why is Franz Liszt in this story? None of the characters really have anything going for them. Like, I don't understand. I don't know who any of these people are. Yeah. Like, Christine wants to be a good singer, but that's her one personality trait, right? She doesn't even have the thing of, like, not that original Christine is all that complicated, but she at least has this history with Raoul and this dead dad and, like, stuff that kind of gives her a bit of depth. You know, Raoul and Anatoly are both have one personality trait, which is they like Christine. Everyone here is very weak, in terms of who they're written as. And mm-hmm. the actors aren't great either. Like, Nelson Eddy seems like he's a pretty good singer, but as an actor, he's just pleasant, right? I can understand why he was in 15 MGM musicals, because he seems like he's a very pleasant fellow. I feel like p- just pleasant is a great way to describe every actor here. Claude Rains isn't even that good. No. I feel like he's phoning it in. Well, yeah, which I guess kind of makes sense, because he's just on loan, yeah. Like, he, he gives it a good try when he gets to be actually Eric, mm. like, before he turns into the Phantom. But once he's the Phantom and has the mask on, just kind of phoning it in. Well, the problem is, is that, like, I know that Claude Rains can play crazy, right? We've seen him do it. But I think he has the same problem that the script does, which is connecting these two people. Like, I believe him when he's this sweet old man. But when he's the Phantom, like, most of the movie, he doesn't have really anything to do. He doesn't say anything. He just skulks around in the shadows and stuff, and that's fine. And then at the end, when he finally has dialogue with Christine, the way he goes for it is less, like, maniacal and more just like, oh, yes, Christine, like, you and I will be together, together forever, you and me, down here in the basement, you and me, Christine, together forever. And it's just like it's not really all that menacing is the problem, right? I think um, it probably would have been more menacing if the movie had been able to do more to make the Phantom a threat. Yeah, if the movie was actually about the Phantom and Christine. Yeah. Which, that's really the problem, is that it isn't. Like, that the movie, he's just this thing that's happening on... On the road to Christine's fame. 
yeah, this is, this is, like you said, this is a backstage musical, right? So if you think of a backstage musical, they're usually about, you know, okay, we have this theater company, uh, and things are going bad for the theater company, and we have a few, you know, characters in the company, whether it's the owner of the company or the, the lead actress or whatever, and they've all got their problems, and we've got to put on a show to save the day, and there are certain obstacles in our way, right? So this is a story of how a young ingenue becomes the star actress of this opera house, and the obstacle in the way is there's this crazy dude who's offing people in the sidelines, right? That's how this movie is structured, as opposed to the, like, who is the Phantom of the Opera mystery structure of the original, right? Yeah. All of this would maybe work, I could maybe forgive, if the ending didn't suck. It sucks so much! The climax is so sudden and weak. Like, we finally get all the characters together, right? We have Christine and Raoul and Anatoly and Eric, and they're all in the same room, and we're in the Phantom's Lair. And to be honest, like, you know, as we said at the start, this movie puts the money on the screen. Like, the lair looks pretty cool. The underground uh, passages and lake and everything, it looks good. And they get there, and they look at each other, and they all exchange maybe one second worth of screen time before, oh, the ceiling came down, and now it's the end, and the movie's over. There's no climax here. There's no action. There's no rising tension. There's nothing here. The story gets to the point where the characters have to confront each other, and then it concocts to have the ceiling fall on a guy so that it's just over. It's like the movie doesn't care about the Phantom so much, right? The movie's so much more interested in the Christine Rowell, Anatoly comedic love triangle that once we actually have to deal with the Phantom, the movie concocts a reason to get us out of there as quickly as we can, you know? Yeah. The other thing that's really frustrating to me is once they the, the, the whole ceiling comes down and everybody runs out, we get this final shot of, like, all the rubble. The, in front of the rubble, there's the violin and, like, the mask resting against the violin. And it's corny, but it works. Yeah. And that's where the movie should have ended. Yeah, except then we get this epilogue where we get to a couple gay guys and Christine enjoying her fame. Right, which, like, is so weird because this is a universal movie. And universal movies don't do denouements, but that's what this is. And because it, this is not a universal horror movie. And it's a wannabe MGM spectacle musical. Right, and because they set up this fucking love triangle, they have to resolve it now. When, like, I don't care. Yeah. So it's not horror, right? It's not? It's not. I I don't even have, like, a possible range, because to me, this is a musical. Musicals are a spectacle, they are meant to be pure entertainment, and the thing is, is, like, I'm sure that in the year of our Lord 2019, you could do a musical that's a horror movie. Mm-hmm. But not in 40s going on 50s classic Hollywood type of musicals where they're just meant to be happy and escapist cotton candy. Right. And this isn't even like, as you said earlier, this isn't even a musical in the sense of like the Andrew Lloyd Webber phantom. Like the songs aren't tied to the plot, Mm -hmm. right? Which is, this is a much more traditional style of musical because you look at a lot of Hollywood musicals from this time period and they are like this, the songs are diegetic. They are performances that are being put on by the characters in the movie, right? Yeah, and um, you can have musicals like Gold Diggers of whatever year, <laughs> where there's like a tying of like real person theme to like the themes b- being put on stage, but this movie does not do that. Right, because here's the other thing. 
if it's a musical, it's still a bad musical. <laughs> yeah. Because all of the songs are fake opera songs. Yeah. Uh, they're all in like French or Russian, the way that like real opera is not generally in English, which uh, differentiates it, by the way, from the opera in Andrew Lloyd Webber. All of the opera in the Andrew Lloyd Webber Phantom Musical is all fake opera made up for it as well, but it's all in English because they knew that a Broadway audience was going to see it in New York, where people <laughs> speak English. So the thing about this movie becomes that, like, the main draw of this movie is the singing. So you have all this opera, but none of it's real opera. So what's the draw? Right? Like, so it's just the technical goodness of the singing. I'm just here to enjoy how good Nelson Eddy is at singing, but I'm not here to see him sing, like, particular favorites. Yeah. And that's the thing about, like, a lot of backstage musicals where the songs are diegetic is usually the appeal is like, oh, well, but we've got these hit songs. It's like, um, this isn't quite the same thing, but like Mamma Mia, right? Where you know you're getting the songs of ABBA, right? That was a lot of these musicals was like, oh, because we're going to get these hit songs. Like, you know, I'm in the money and, and, and that kind of thing. But this is just made up nonsense. This is just, we stuck some lyrics over some public domain Tchaikovsky. So it's not, and it's all in a different language. So the songs aren't good. You aren't going to come out of this movie, like, humming the songs, right? So it's not even a good musical, Sarah. Yeah. Okay. Well, folks, since we aren't ranking this... Um... The cinematography's good. It's a good-looking movie. I can see why it won an Oscar for cinematography. Sure, sure, sure. Credit where credit's due. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, even though we're not ranking this, Sarah, I do think it was worthwhile to watch it on the show. Yeah. Mostly because a lot of the changes that this makes to the story, specifically the idea that the Phantom was, like, scarred and he's out for revenge, carry on into later versions of Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, I know there's, like, a Hammer Horror mm-hmm. adaptation later on of Phantom. Like, it's not like this is the last time we're seeing the Phantom in the horror genre. Yeah. Um. So I agree that it was good to watch. Yeah. If you do want to check out the list... Um, our last episode on Phantom of the Opera, episode 14. You can go to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find an appeals box if you would like to contest this non-ranking of the 1943 Phantom of the Opera. You can do so there. You're also welcome to send us any concerns, questions, suggestions for films we might have missed. You can also email any of those to screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. Or talk to us on Twitter at underscore Scream Scene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. If you would like to help the show out, you can leave us a rating or a review on the service that you listen to the show on, or share us with a friend on social media or in real life. You can also help the show out by going to patreon.com slash Podcast and becoming a patron of the show for as little as a dollar a month. At the $5 and $10 a month levels, you get bonus content, uh, audio cut from previous episodes, horror short fiction, and if we hit our first Patreon goal of $150 a month, we'll start doing bonus episodes on horror-adjacent movies. Uh, So, for example, maybe the Joel Schumacher Phantom of the Opera, adapting the Andrew Lloyd Webber musical starring (laughs) Gerard Butler, is something we might cover. And Emmy Rossum. It stars Emmy Rossum. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Patrick Wilson. Yeah... Raoul is just always cardboard. Raoul's always bad. There's never yeah. been a good Raoul. No, no, no. So if you would like to hear that, head over to patreon.com slash podcast and kick a buck our way. Ben, what are we watching next week? Well, Sarah, next week we're back to RKO and Val Luton 
for the directorial debut of Mark Robeson in The Seventh Victim, starring Tim Conway and Gene Brooks. Okay, so back to showing how someone can actually work with a small budget and how that will actually make a good horror movie. Yep. Yep. See you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye! Bye! Bye!